1984, President Ronald Reagan put down a novel about a Soviet submarine captain defecting to the United States by a little-known author named Tom Clancy. He described it as the perfect yarn. A few months after it got the president's seal of approval, The Hunt for Red October shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Five years after that, the country was impatiently waiting to see how director John McTiernan was going to follow up one of the most successful and influential action movies ever made, Die Hard. So, it was 30 years ago, in 1990, when The Hunt for Red October premiered to rave reviews. I mean, this is a tight, exciting, funny, and endlessly surprising techno-thriller, brilliantly helmed by McTiernan and showcasing the talents of cinematographer Jan de Bont, veteran actors like Sean Connery, James Earl Jones, and Scott Glenn, along with relative newcomer Alec Baldwin in his first starring role. So if you're interested in the craft of screenwriting, camera work, acting, editing, and directing, you can't do much better than The Hunt for Red October. So if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend a deep dive into our website, cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream this Cold War classic, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. But be sure to resurface on Friday to hear the cinephiles discuss one of their favorite films, Tom Clancy and John McTiernan's The Hunt for Red October. And once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary. The American Navy. It reminds me of the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, when the world trembled at the sound of our rockets, and they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. The order is engage the silent drive. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, and producer, and host here in California. Um, and now Skype professional with uh, Steve Morris here as we uh, record our new episode for this film I'm very much looking forward to talking about. That's right. The outlaw and I are not in the same room. This is the <laughs> first time we've ever tried this. And the truth is we've been talking about it for a while because Los Angeles commuting back and forth to each other's houses is, it takes a lot of time. It really does. And while I really do like being in the room with you, I think this gives us a little bit of extra time in our lives. And at the time that we're recording this, there is a lot of people saying that we should distance ourselves socially from other people. So <laughs> yes. That wasn't the reason that we started doing this, but it does coincide right now. The coronavirus is going on. It's just, well, there's a lot of stuff going on today. Yeah, um, it's certainly, it's certainly yeah. madness. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of craziness going on today. And you um, know what else has changed, Steve? What? Our U.S. Russia relations seem like this is an interestingly <laughs> uh, topical film for us to talk about as well. Right, because today we are talking about Hunt for Red October, directed by John McTiernan, based on the Tom Clancy book that launched a whole bunch of movies and video games and lots more books with the Jack Ryan character. This is, of course, I think this movie is so important to that whole series, and I wanted to ask you, how did you first come to this film? Uh, I remember seeing this in the theater. I remember being super excited about it at the time because I, I was a, a reader of Clancy novels, uh, and he was from and he oh, wrote so a lot. Oh, you read about, them before you read them before yes. they, the movie came out. 
Yeah, I, no, I hadn't read The Hunt for Red October before the movie came out, but I had read other ones before because, like, where I grew up in Virginia, there was a lot of people whose parents worked for, like, the Department of Defense and worked for... The, so those books you'd see in high school, people walking around with those books. So you get curious and you start to read them. And they're dense books. They're very oh, yeah. dense books with incredible detail to what they're talking about. And, you know, this film is actually a little more difficult than than I remembered it being in terms of the uh, presentation of all the weapons and the submarine and what have you. It's complicated. Yeah, There's very a lot complicated. Of stuff going on. Yeah, so I would start reading those books, and then um, when the movie was announced, I was incredibly excited because, A, this is like peak Sean, peak Sean Connery renaissance and also peak Alec Baldwin, a beginning of Alec Baldwin's prime as a person you wanted to watch and see in uh, in film. So I went to see it in the theater, and I absolutely loved it. I think it went back three more times after I saw it because it's such a brilliantly and technically smart thriller. Um, I saw it in the movie theater too. I hadn't read any of the books. I didn't know anything about them. I saw it multiple times in the theater. I think I've owned it in every single format you could have. I had it on VHS. I had it on Laserdisc. I had it on DVD. I had it on Blu-ray. And I just got, there's just a new 4K Mm Blu-ray because this is the 30th anniversary. It's 30 years ago that it just came out. Um, And uh, after that, I started reading some of the books. And it's funny, there's this era. And I think Stephen King really stands above all these people as genre writers who were, you know, hugely successful (laughs) and and spawned all these films. But you also have Tom Clancy, who has this sort of techno thriller genre that he owns, which has a lot of followers after him and at the same time you have Grisham with the legal thriller that's sort of a genre that he owns and then you also have Michael Crichton who's cranking out all of these sort of pop culture sci-fi ish books that we got a lot of movies made from and all of this is happening around the same time um, I, I read a bunch of the books after and none of the books do I like as much as I like this movie yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You could, say, and not no, no disrespect to Mr. Clancy, who obviously is a ma- was a master at doing this particular thing. But yeah. I think this is an incredibly brilliantly made move, movie by John McTiernan. Yeah, I mean, to be able to pare it down to the essentials, but also not remove the intelligence and the smartness of those books, I thought was an incredible achievement by John McTiernan. John McTiernan, by the way, what a '80s for this guy. Yet. Not considered one of our legendary directors, not considered one of these directors that, you know, you saw decades and decades of phenomenal work from doing Die Hard and Hunt for Red October almost what within a year of each other or two years of each other. It's a hell of a one two punch to announce yourself as a director. And this is so true with so many directors. Sometimes they just have just a little bit and then boom, they're gone for a while. Like William Friedkin, boom, boom. And then nothing really of note afterwards. And I think the same thing happened, unfortunately, for John McTiernan. It is it is so weird uh, this one because he, mm. Predators his first film which we've obviously right. talked about as your as your B movie <laughs> that you discussed lots of times I think Predators a really good first film it Die is. Hard is a masterpiece one of the great films of all time and I think Hunt for Red October is amazing so it's I, just as good I, yeah. yeah and so. In in 1990, I thought, this is the next great director. And I remember going to see Medicine Man, which is his next film, and and going, oh, you know? (laughs) And it's not, you know, there's the Thomas Crown Affair, which is pretty good, and there's 13th Warrior, which is so good, you know? And then it's a bunch of some other stuff, and it's like, how were you such a master for a short space of time and then just lost your way? It's a a weird one. Um. 
Let's talk a little bit about uh, pre-production. Uh, this started right when the book hadn't even come out. It was in galleys, and uh, Mace Newfeld uh, found it and bought the rights. And at the same time, McTiernan had written it, and apparently he says he went to get the rights right after Mason just missed it. Um, studios weren't interested in this at all. This is in 1985. They're like, this is too complicated. It's too technical. It's too anti-Russian. We don't, nobody's interested in this kind of thing. Um, Plus it's a submarine movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Submarine movie. Um, McTiernan is working on Predator and Mace finds out about him, sees some of the footage from Predator and hires him to come onto the film way back then. And they bring on uh, Larry Ferguson to be the screenwriter. He had written uh, Presidio and he had written Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is certainly not not my favorite film. Um, and one of the interesting things is that the Navy loved this book, you know, which makes sense because the Navy was, you know, particularly this is, you know, mid to late 80s. The U.S. military had not been treated very well uh, by movie makers in the late 70s and early 80s. But then you get Top Gun. And now, and Top Gun is a huge hit, and now the Navy is going. Well, we we got a whole bunch of fi- people to sign up to become fighter pilots. <laughs> Maybe we can get some people to get excited about being in submarines. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. And I remember that the, I mean, Top Gun when that thing came out, still one of my favorite, maybe top five eighties films. Uh, just overall for the impact and the effect and the, what I feel when I watch it. But I remember the spike in people who signed sure. up to join the Navy after that. So why not? And you're right, because before up to this point, I think around the mid 80s, it's a fair assessment that the military was being used because of Vietnam and all this right. with a negative connotation. So um, they didn't want to lend out their vehicles and lend out their support or help from their side of things to to uh, to be in these movies. But but I also know, having been in the military for a, a few years when I was in, that there is a PR department and they constantly have conversations with studios about oh, right. showing a positive aspect of the military. No matter what branch it is, they want to be seen in a positive light. And so uh, Top Gun, you're right, kind of broke that thing a little bit open and showed that there were people who were now kind of switching over into supporting the military. Also, you can't. It, this has to be said, this is during the Reagan years when the military was seen as something to right to rally around again to be proud of again to be glorified again and so uh it's no surprise that this all came about at the right time for this film to get made i really wish i don't know how to put this the right way that we could support and respect the people that serve in the military that make that kind of sacrifice for our country while simultaneously having a critical eye about our country's foreign policy and choices Mm -hmm. that our country's made without doing this pendulum swing of super rah-rah patriotism, everything we do is great, and super, you know, spit on the troops coming home after Vietnam, disrespectful for these people that are making this sacrifice. Somewhere in the middle, you know, that that keeps both ideas alive, well, that's just... How Steve Morris thinks, I guess. <laughs> well, I think the there. I think there's way more of us in the middle than the than I don't want to say this is the boogeyman. Than some members of the media might have you believe. I think there's way more of us in the middle. We understand we need the military. We respect the military. The military is essential for our existence as a country. But by the same token, just just because it's the military doesn't mean it's somehow uh, uh you know uh, immune to criticism or immune to analysis. And I think, more, but you know, the extreme points of views are what gets the clicks. So that's that's what they go for nowadays. But I think in the past, we've had more of a middle approach to the military. And so hopefully that will return again someday. I certainly hope so. Um, 
So uh, the first thing they had to figure out as they're getting their screenplay written is they go, well, who's going to play Jack Ryan? And of course, what do you want? You want a big star, and they go after Kevin Costner. Of course, perfect Jack Ryan, Kevin Costner. <laughs> and he was really busy with this Buffalo movie and <laughs> to go out in the plane, some Western thing, and, and, yeah. and Mace, the producer, is like, would you rather play with Buffaloes or play with submarines? And the answer for Kevin was Buffaloes. And you can't fault him for that answer. I mean, certainly, <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched that movie in a long time. I, it's, uh, it's still okay. Yeah. It's not great. Yeah. Um, uh, and so then they decide, well, if we're not going to do a big movie star... Let's get, maybe we can get someone up and coming. And I think it's amazing that they go after Alec Baldwin. Yeah, because he's, he's, I mean, this is off of Beetlejuice just a couple of years before. So it's not like he's this massive star necessarily, but he's certainly up and coming and has had some movies of note up to this point. Yeah, but he is not a star at all. Mm. Beetlejuice is a comedy. He plays like a supporting role that gets a little attention in Working Girl. I mean, the guy's a soap opera actor who'd done Knott's Landing and all these other, you know, just a working guy. And so to see that he could be this, you know, carry a movie, man, that's a lot to put on him. Exactly. And he certainly steps up to the task, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, throughout the movie. I think he's fantastic. Right. He's so good. Um, Shall we get into it? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. So it starts with that little, you know, typed up on the screen that this is no, this is November of 1984. It's before Gorbachev came to power. And um, one interesting thing about this is uh, so originally one other casting piece is that uh, Sean Connery was not the original cast. Oh, wow. It was Klaus Maria Brandauer was going to play. Which I remember makes, Klaus Maria Brandauer. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And he dropped out two weeks before they start shooting. Wow. Yeah. I I don't think the film is anywhere near as revered or beloved or enjoyed if you don't have Sean Connery in it. It's just a perfect one-two punch. Essentially an American James Bond like Alec Baldwin with the original James Bond in Sean Connery. It so works. Both one good-looking at a younger age, one good-looking at an older age, and it's just a good balance. And Klaus Maria Brander, no offense, but... Nobody was filling up or putting butts in seats with, with Klaus Maria Brandauer in your movie. Well, and you said when we started that this is like the Sean Connery Renaissance, and yeah. we just finished talking about Last Crusade just recently. Yeah. You know, like the, and, and his performance in Last Crusade couldn't be different from this performance. Um, yeah, just amazing. And he so they they fax him the script, and he reads it. You know, that day and calls back and says, "I can't do this." And they say, "Why?" And he says, "Well." We're in the middle of perestroika. We're making deals with Gorbachev. We can't. This is like a Cold War movie. This movie do, it doesn't make any sense. And what happened was they didn't fax the first page that said it was in 1984. <laughs> and once he found out that it actually is in 1984, at the height of the Cold War, he said, "Oh, okay." And that's how he signed on to the film. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> and we start in a very very cold place on the top of this submarine on the conning tower, and they shot this in Alaska, and we start with Sean Connery's eyes. Yeah. It's a great opening shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it pulls back, and, and, and uh, Sam Neill is there, and he says, it's time. And he says, it's time indeed. And the camera pulls back, and we see that sub. And by the way, this is a full-size mock-up built on two 200-foot barges. Wow. That's a big, big set. 
and the camera pulls back and we see the sub going away and we hear the rising chorus and we get titles and we go into uh, a title sequence which starts off kind of looking Russian and then goes into English. Yeah, which kind of prefaces what we're going to see later when we start talking in Russian, then come close up on the mouth, and then switch over to English for a majority of the movie. And, uh, oh, that's a great point. That's totally yeah. a great point. By the way, the score is Basil Poliduris, which is it's a yeah. great score. Fantastic. I love, I love him as a composer. He's kind of yeah. these quiet composers nobody talks about, but he's fantastic work. Well, and the use of the, co- the choir in this is just, uh, it's awesome. Um, and then we end up in this kind of room that looks like a study and we see like these old paintings of ships and drawings and naval battles and the camera pans past a computer and images of submarines and models and books on naval history. And then we end up with a little girl and there is Alec Baldwin. Boy, he was good looking at this era. My God, he's right. You're just like, and listen, you know, I'm a straight man saying this. I got no qualms saying this. He's a good looking dude. Both of them, yeah. actually. They're both good looking, but certainly Baldwin here is young. He's fresh. He's thin. He's vibrant. He's just on the cusp of his prime. And, but he still has that Baldwin voice, that Baldwin voice of his, you know. And, uh, and there's Gates McFadden, Beverly yes. Crusher from the Enterprise. Yes. And she says, you're going to miss their plane. And the little girl is asking for a little brother for Stanley, which is her pet bear. Um, and he promises. And we end up at the airport, which, by the way, is shot at LAX. And uh, we get on a plane and the stewardess comes over to Alec and says, you know, try to get some sleep. And he says, oh, I could never sleep on a plane. It's turbulence. And I love this line. She says, pardon? Turbulence. Solar radiation heats the Earth's crust. Warm air rises. Cool air descends. Turbulence. I, I don't like that. <laughs> a couple of things about this line. First of all, you totally like this. You get a sense of this character right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he's nerdy and smart and a little bit uh, odd. Um, and the second thing is there's so many weird Die Hard parallels. Yeah. Die Hard starts on an airplane with a guy who's afraid of flying. Oh, that's a good point, actually, that it is that kind of balance between the two. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And Die Hard, and, and what is uh, John McClane bringing on the plane? He's bringing a teddy bear. Yeah. For his kid. <laughs> and what is going to end up at the end of this movie? Uh, Bringing back a teddy bear. There's so, yeah. It's wow. so funny. Um, uh, and some officers pick him up at the airport. We end up at the CIA. And we go to meet James Earl Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can we say about Mr. James <laughs> Earl Jones? Uh, I love seeing him in this. But that's the thing about this movie. This movie is chock full of some very... Uh, strong character actors, but character like the cream of the crop of character actors, you know, character actors who've been leads in other movies, yeah. but sliding in to give a lot of weight and gravitas to these roles because it's a very important uh, f- situation that's going to happen in this movie that deserves the weight and gravity of these actors to bring it forward. And one, one of the things that McTiernan said was he wanted James Earl Jones because he wanted to show this guy as a good boss. That this is, and he really is. He's so likable and so nice, and very much against what you would think of as like the head of the CIA, right? You know, right. and they talk about family, a little small talk about the kids and about Stanley and what you know, the pet bear, and then we get to business. What's important enough to get you on a plane in the middle of the night? Cut to the photos of the Red October. And I love uh, Greer says uh, James Earl Jones, big son of a bitch. 
and we hear that the captain, who the captain is, which is Captain Ramius, Marco Ramius, and that Jack did a bio on him, and that he's like the top sub captain in the in the navy. Trained all their other captains. They call him the Vilnius schoolmaster. And then we get right to the big question, which is, what are these weird doors in the picture? And I remember when I first saw this, and they explained the doors. You're just like blown away at this possibility. It's so reminiscent to Star Trek VI, right? That mm. cloaking bird of prey that can shoot while cloaked. And it's this kind of thing of like, oh, there's always been this way of fighting uh, this situation. And now you're bringing in a prototype that destroys all the ways that we've prepared to fight this particular uh, uh, weapon in the past. And so it's very similar to that. Totally. Well, it makes sense because Star Trek Six is a Cold War movie. Yeah. And this is a Cold War movie. And um, and one and one of the other things is, and this is true if you read Tom Clancy novels, is tech is important. Yes. You know, and Tom Clancy, if you read those books, spends a lot of time explaining the latest tech. And this movie has to do a lot of heavy lifting and make you understand a whole bunch of stuff. And this is really, really tough screenwriting. And they do it really, really well. Yeah. Um, and right now we're going to find out. And there's one more thing about this that they know that on satellite, the Red October left. It's sailing off. So it's not just an academic question now. Now that boat is in the water. And uh, we cut to uh, the dark, and we see a very dark shape go by. And these are the – I really think they did a great job with the underwater shots of the subs in this. Mm -hmm. They're shot not in water but in smoke. They're big, huge models done with motion control cameras. Um, and uh, one, one of the interesting things is, is at these really deep depths, there might be no light. Right. You know, So even having just a little bit of light like they do here might not be accurate. Um, and we cut to a submarine, which is the USS Dallas, and it says that this is a Los Angeles attack uh, uh, class sub, and we are listening to sound. And the voice that we're hearing is so great. The way that he speaks is so completely unique. Correct. See, man, Beaumont, signal, algorithmic processing systems. Give it a week and you'll be teaching at Caltech. And what, who we see is Courtney B. Vance. Yeah, Courtney B. Vance. One of these, once again, another one of these great character actors playing a bit of a smaller part, but you want that kind of confidence and that kind of strength because he's going to be integral in getting the USS Dallas to believe in his hypothesis that the Russians have created a unique submarine. Uh, and so you want to immediately put him in a position where he's teaching a younger person about it. So immediately we as the audience gravitate to him as an experienced, knowledgeable person. He already has a short, like a, sh it's easy way to get him to be credentialed in our eyes. Well, so, so many things about this. The first is just, you see, because he's teaching this other person, the other people he's teaching is us, the audience. Yes. It's, it's yeah. a perfect, if you, you could have him just, the, someone explain this to us and it would be boring. But because you have these great characters in this lesson, we're interested in the scene. The second thing is talk about owning a character. I mean, you know, like he does oh, yeah, make so much with this guy. Mm -hmm. And he, he, this is his first movie. He didn't want to do it. Really? I a didn't know that. Apparently, oh. well, this is what McTiernan says, mm -hmm. is that he saw him on Broadway in Fences with James Earl Jones. Right. Which is the production that I saw when it toured in San Francisco, which is still one of the greatest theater experiences of my life. And he says, you're great. Come do this movie. And Courtney Vance was real reluctant and had to be kind of talked into it. And what we hear is that what they've been tracking is a biologic, which is a whale. A what? A whale, Beaumont, a whale. A marine mammal that knows a hell of a lot more about sonar than you do. 
And then here comes the chief of the boat. He gets to ragging on you too bad, kid. You could always ask him about Pavarotti. And I didn't realize who this actor is. This is Larry Ferguson. This is the screenwriter. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's this whole scene where they're talking about where, where the chief wants to tell this young uh, sailor this story about uh, Jonesy, the Courtney B. Vance character, that he had one time used the whole sea for his stereo equipment and was playing, he says, Pavarotti, but was actually Paganini. And it's a very funny story. And, it takes, and the story takes us to write to a place where it then gets cut off. Um, and this is just a screenwriting thing is that you frequently can't go right from one thing to the next thing. And so you need to create a digression within the screenplay to have that digression then get cut off by the by the interruption. Mm-hmm. And so but you hope that the digression introduces great character development. And this one does. Yeah. A great little bit. Con Sonar, new contact bearing 097. Designate contact number Sierra 35. And here comes our captain, Scott Glenn. Captain I, what do you got, Jonesy? We've had him in a couple of movies, and this is one of my favorite performances of his. Cause, yeah, because we saw him in The Right Stuff. Yep. Uh, and yeah, and so we've had him, and we have yeah, him there here. There's another one we had him, too, and I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, we've done three years of movies, four years of movies, <laughs> Steve. <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And so, but yes, this is once again, Scott Glenn's one of these guys that could easily lead a film and did lead smaller films around this time mm-hmm. in the 80s as well. But here he is coming in as the USS Dallas. He's got that drawl. He's got that kind of, I don't know, Midwestern, really foundational type of thing. And so you immediately uh, uh, just kind of give your allegiance to this guy right off the bat. Distant contact, probably submerged. It's a wild guess, but I'd say we had a boomer coming out of the bar. And now we're back on the Red October, and men are assembling, and the Russians come through. A lot of these guys, by the way, were actual Russians. There's a big Russian community in Los Angeles, and Uh a lot of them had served in the Russian military. Um, And they assemble, and we have this scene with Sam Neill, who's, again, this, this is really where I discovered him. You know, he had been in some other films... Uh, before in Australian films, but this is where I just kind of fell in love with the guy. And it's a few years before Jurassic Park. Um, And they have, you could tell through all the looks and all the moments that there's something going on between Sean Connery and Sam Neill. Yeah. You know, we don't know what it is, but something's going on. And we hear that the political officer is down in the cabin. And uh, (laughs) by the way, I just want to take one moment to to discuss something that's very impressive in this film. And that is (laughs) Sean Connery's hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite uh, rugs of his. <laughs> right, because he is a bald, uh, balding or balding or bald guy. Yeah, and it's a beautiful look with the goatee, the perfectly trimmed goatee, the salt and pepper combo. It's a good look. It's a great look. And apparently one of the cool things about Sean Connery is unlike a lot of other male stars, he wanted to be perfectly out that he was going bald. He didn't want to hide it. (laughs) And McTiernan had to convince him to put on a toupee and Sean Connery apparently designed this toupee. And he, this, I never knew he modeled it after the hair of playwright Samuel Beckett. Oh, wow. If you look at a picture of Beckett, you go like, yeah, (laughs) that is that hair. Um, Makes sense. uh, And so we go, we go down to his cabin and the political officer who's from the KGB obviously is looking through his stuff, which he's a little bit irritated with. And he's reading out of this book and he says, and all of this, by the way, is in Russian. It's subtitled. And I think you're going at this point, man, am I going to have to read all these subtitles this whole time? And the studio. Yeah. And then we see in subtitles, it says, behold, I am coming as a thief as they gathered them together in a place called Armageddon. 
And that word is subtitled, and it is zoomed in on his lips. And then as it comes out, we are now speaking in English. And the seventh angel poured forth his bowl into the air, and a voice cried out from heaven, saying, It is done. Yeah. Really smart tactic to do it this way. So here's what I did. This is the advantage of doing the cinephiles with you. Mm. I thought this was the most brilliant way to transition languages I had ever seen, and I had no idea that this was lifted from another movie, which is Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh, right. Yeah. I'll be damned. And McTiernan, I never what made I, the connection. <laughs> yeah, and McTiernan acknowledges it. He's like, I totally stole this from Judgment at Nuremberg. Right. Yeah, it's a great, because it's when it pushes in on, what's his name, on uh, the German lawyer. Uh, yeah, 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 Maximilian Schell. Maximilian Schell, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a great moment. And now we're in English, and the this political guy is a little concerned that this you're reading a book about the end of the world, and he says, well, this is a quote from the man who designed the atomic bomb, who was later thought of as a communist, which, of course, they're talking about Robert Oppenheimer. You wrote and underlined these passages. No. This book belonged to my wife. I keep it for sentimental value. What's really great, watch Sean Connery's performance in this scene, because mm -hmm. it's so obvious that there is more going on emotionally than under the surface. And that what when you see it and you know what's about to happen, it's that, oh, he knows what he's going to have to do. And he's reluctant to do it. And what McTiernan said, this is that I totally agree with, is that if he didn't have that reluctance, then we wouldn't like him as a character. He would just be a bad guy. What he has to do is they open up the safe, they pull out the, mm -hmm. the keys, you know, they each have their own keys, they pull out their orders, and the political officer says, I'm going to go announce this to the crew, and Sean Connery says, okay, and then grabs him from behind, pulls him back, slams his head onto a table, and then kills him. And shockingly so Oh yeah You said earlier uh, What helps us You know They set this thing up In a certain way To help you feel Connected to Sean Connery His struggle With what he's about to do But also it helps That this Russian guy Is your typical Kind of pseudo-stereotypical You know The submarine is not yours It is property right. Of the people of Russia So he's not a good guy He's not a nice guy He's one of these people In his positions of power Who likes to use The idea of what he's doing For his own personal benefit as supposedly representative of uh, what the Russian people would want him to do, but it's really only him doing it and trying to hide behind that. So already he's kind of a sort of a despicable guy. Certainly didn't ra doesn't radiate intelligence because he's questioning Sean Connery's intelligence about this and, and reading this book and all that jazz. So when he is killed, we don't feel sympathy for his death, but we do feel a little shock of like, oh, is this a character that we should like in terms of uh, a Sean Connery's character? Well, and the shot of the guy dying with his mouth open, yeah, it is yeah. scary and intense. And Sean makes the, you know, pours some tea so to make the scene look better. He, he burns the old orders. He pulls new orders out of his pocket and he calls for the doctor. There's been a terrible accident. We cut to the naval shipyards. Jack Ryan is entering this great, great, looks like an amazing set. There's guys welding. There's a submarine hanging up on the ceiling. This is a real nuclear submarine. This is in a real naval shipyards, which is kind of amazing. And uh, someone tosses him a hard hat, and it's a little acting thing. But even the way Alec Baldwin puts on that hard hat is interesting. 
because mm-hmm. he does it. He's nervous. He's awkward. He's you know th- thoughtful. There's yeah. always something going on with his character. Uh, and there we see Jeffrey Jones, Best. who who we last saw as the Emperor of Vienna in Amadeus. I think that's the only other movie we've done that he's in. Yeah. He is a really good actor, great supporting actor, problematic human. Yes, problematic human, and it's such a shame because there are so many great films and great performances from Jeffrey Jones that you will enjoy. And in here, once again, this is such a different character than he's played in just about any other film you've seen him in because he's very like, he's like super excited about knowledge and he's he's about to give that story a little in a couple of minutes about his father taking him as a young man to see this thing. And so, so much about this character with the beard and everything feels like a guy you'd like to work with, you'd like to know uh, in this job. And it's such a shame, of course, what happens to him what has happened to him over the last few years and the actions he's taken that are, you know, criminal. Criminal and horrific, yeah. Yes. But his performance here, and as you say, he's down to earth and honest. And right mm-hmm. now, he's working on a DSRV, which again, we got to get out the techno stuff, which is this is yeah. like a little rescue sub. And we hear a bit of exposition that it has a, a collar that can fit onto the hatch of any ship, just about anything. And we can get it anywhere in the world in 24 hours. And then we go and show him the photos. And the first thing that Jeffrey Jones notices is those doors. You don't miss much, do you? Now, those are too big to be torpedo tubes. Would you launch an ICBM horizontally? Sure. Why would you want to? And then he has a reaction. This this could be a caterpillar. A what? Uh, a caterpillar drive. Magnetohydrodynamic propulsion. It's like uh, a jet engine for the water and that it's almost silent, and that the U.S. had worked on it for a long time, they couldn't make it work. They really built this. This isn't a mock-up or anything. She put to sea this morning. We ask how quiet it, w- it would be, and he says, It's doubtful our son would even pick it up. And if it did, it'd sound like whales humping or some kind of seismic anomaly. Anything but a submarine. Yeah. Again, we're planting these words, seismic anomaly. It's really important because we're going to hear that later. And then there's this moment that he leans back, and this is what you were talking about. Yeah. He says, When I was 12, I helped my daddy build a bomb shelter in our basement because some fool parked a dozen warheads 90 miles off the coast of Florida. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington and New York, and no one would know anything about it till it was all over. And the thing is, uh, for you kids listening to us, there was a time when this kind of stuff was absolutely possible in a lot of our minds across the country. Like a lot of us believed it. Certainly our press wrote uh, newspapers about it, talked about it, or articles rather about it. And it was something that was prevalent for a number of years in the 80s. This idea that the Russians would find a way to launch um, the whole idea that Reagan pushed that Star Wars initiative to try to defend some of the nuclear weapons that might come th- that might be shot at us so that we could so some members of the American public would survive. I mean, this was such a massive deal. So if you put it in the time frame, Jeffrey Jones is close up on his face when he says this line is so perfect to convey the weight uh, and the seriousness of this possibility. We're zipping a body into a body bag, and there is the Red October's doctor, Tim Curry. <laughs> by, by the way, no Russians are playing any of these main Russian characters. No. Brilliant. You've got a, what is it, an Australian? You've got a, a, a British person. You've got a Scottish person. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Um, and uh, Studio didn't want to hire Tim Curry at all. They're like, this is the, you can't have this guy in a serious movie. I mean, you know, this is the guy from Rocky Horror and from Clue. Um, and I love him in this film. Yeah, he is great. He's so pivotal. 
And he, at first, he's like just telling Sean Connery, you know, it was an accident. Don't blame yourself. Um, and, you know, this will all be fine when we put in. It's like, put in? What do you mean? We cannot go on without a political officer. Doctor, this is a combat vessel of the Soviet Navy, and I'm a senior combat officer. We do not cancel operations because of accidents. And he calls over a seaman. It's the cook. Yes. This guy we're going to see a lot later gets his name, asks him to witness something, which is that he is taking the political officer's missile key. And Tim Curry has a reaction. The reason for having two missile keys is so that no one man may... And he doesn't finish that sentence. What? May arm the missiles. Perhaps I should keep the key. Thank you, that'll be all, Doctor. And then as Tim Curry's leaving, he says, oh, and I'll try to forget your comments when I present my report. And Tim Curry, as a good Russian, goes, "Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Great. Great how this all works. But they linger on the cook before that scene yep. ends. And this is so funny because when you go back and rewatch it, McTiernan is laying the groundwork for what he's going to surprise you with later. But you would only know that if you watched it uh, a second time. But it's very deft what he does. Because why wouldn't a, you close up? On, why wouldn't you, you know, kind of end the scene with the cook being like kind of freaked out about everything that happened. But, you know, later on you see that he's taking it in because he, he, he suspects something is going on. Well, this is something we talked about this uh, when we did the two Indiana Jones movies movies is, is mm-hmm. there's so many plants and payoffs if you're aware of the plant that's a bad plant yes the good plants are ones that you are not aware of we're back on the dallas and uh we're talking about tracking this uh ship again we have this guy that uh jones is training seaman beaumont and because he asks questions we get to learn stuff only here's not if we stay in his baffles seaman beaumont not if we stay in his baffles Come in behind his propeller and he's deaf as a post. Uh, we're back on the October. And once more, we play our dangerous game. A game of chess against our old adversary, the American Navy. Sean's so great. He's yes. so great on this speech. But today, the game is different. We have the advantage. Now, it reminds me of the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin. When the world trembled at the sound of our rockets, well, they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. It's a great speech, right? Yes, very good speech. So Larry Ferguson didn't write this speech. Oh. Tom Clancy didn't write this speech. You want to know what? Sean Connery wrote the speech? Nope. They brought in our friend John Milius. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's, It's so got that swagger. Yeah, of John yeah. Milius from Apocalypse Now, from Conan, like that's who wrote this speech. He wrote a couple of a couple of scenes, mostly all on the Russian sides. And what he did, he would write on yellow legal pads and send them. He would write them in the middle of the night, so in the, at three in the morning, McTiernan would get a couple of yellow pages from uh, Milius and have to incorporate them into the next day's shooting. That's where this came from, comrades. Our own fleet doesn't know our full potential. They will do everything possible to test us but they will only test their own embarrassment. We will leave our fleet behind. We will pass through the American patrols, pass their sonar nets, and lay off their largest city and listen to their rock and roll while we conduct missile drills. And all the Russians start to sing. Caterpillar engaging. And by the way, the the that big 
uh, Russian who starts to sing first is uh, one of those uh, warriors from Conan the Barbarian. Speaking of John Milius, uh, he is Schwarzenegger's friend. I think it's Oli something Thorson. Oh, yeah. We saw him as one of the, the two guys <laughs> who confronts uh, Conan at the end of the movie. That is awesome. I yeah. wonder how he ended up in this. That is just such an interesting bit of casting. That's so random, right? And we're back on the Dallas, and we've lost them. And we go back to the October. Everybody is singing. There's lots of flares. The camera is moving. Now they hear the, the American sub. Suddenly they're aware of the Dallas. Is the American turning to follow us? No, Captain. American is continuing in his original course. He's continuing northwest. He can't hear us. And Sam is nervous and asks if they should stop singing or if they should change course. And there's this moment, and Sean watches the Russian Navy sing. And I love his performance in this. And he finally says, let them sing. Yeah. And even conducts them a little bit. What do you think's going on with him in this moment? Uh, I just, I think... His objective, and we see this later on when he decides what to do with his Russian crew, is to maybe savor just a few more minutes or a few more moments in his homeland. Because he's leaving not because he hates the people. Yes. He's leaving because he hates the government. And he doesn't like what they've done. And his wife's passing has kind of opened his eyes. He has nothing else to keep him in, keeping him tied to the Soviet Union. So... But he still loves his crew. He's a good captain. He loves to serve. Uh, and so to me, I think he's like one, he's of two purposes here. One, he keeps the crew thinking that it's a proud moment. It's a prideful moment. And they're going to, you know, echo the Yuri Gagarin and all that. We're going to get the best of the Americans. But by the same token, in a more personal way, he's also like just kind of savoring the last few moments he might have with yes. his crew and with these people. I mean, I think in his own way, he's a patriot. Yes, you know, Absolutely. He, he loves, loves his co- people. Yeah. He and loves he loves country. his country. Yeah. Yes. yes. He just, well, and it's also the, what is the Red October? The Red October is a first strike submarine. Its purpose is to, is to kill, to destroy the world. You know, yeah. it's a very scary thing. Sonar is working, Captain. The Russian disappeared. One minute he was steady, 4,000 yards off the bow, and then he was gone. And for a second, I thought I heard heard more i thought i heard singing sir great great moment yeah we're in moscow and some grumpy official is walking down hallways going yah yah to each person he, <laughs> he goes by uh he gets he sits down he pours himself some tea he gets a letter it's from marco ramius he goes oh marco he opens it up pulls it out the camera pushes in he stirs his tea he lifts up the cup and we are hearing the rise of the singing, which was what was on the Red October, and he drops his cup. Mm-hmm. This guy is a guy named Peter Zinner. He is the he's an editor, not an actor. Oh, wow. He edited Deer Hunter. <laughs> and I believe, if I understand it correctly, he was hired to edit The Hunt for Red October, and McTiernan fired him. Because, and this is, he talked about this in Die Hard, is that the way he, old school editors couldn't figure out how to cut the way he moved the camera, and he needed a younger editor, but he still liked the guy, so he gave him this part. (laughs) What the hell happened? Come on, this is no longer a research project. And Jack is excited, because he figured out what the doors are, and James Earl Jones says, a nearly silent propulsion system? How did you know? 
How did you know? Captain of the sub, we had following her, radioed in, thing up and disappeared right in front of them. That's only the half of it. And he hands him some papers. We get into an elevator and there's little subtle things. James Earl Jones uses a key because obviously we're going to like a, you know, a secure floor. Where are we going anyway? Briefing for Jeffrey Pelt, President's National Security Advisor. Most of the Joint Chiefs will be there along with a few other people. Who's giving the briefing? You are. <laughs> I love this moment. I, and I love how he just stays still looking at the paper and James Earl Jones has to go back for him yeah. and bring him in and say, you know, just tell the truth. If he asks you direct questions, give him direct answers uh, in that way. But you, Steve, I want to take a moment here. It's pretty incredible to when I, rewatching this film again for the podcast. I guess in my mind, I had remembered that he that uh, Jack was more of an impetus for everything that's happening. But actually, he's more being dragged, not dragged along, but he's moved along through the movie. His knowledge is what gets him into these positions. But it's certainly everyone else's reactions to his knowledge that moves him from one stage to the next stage to the next stage. And I always enjoy the small conversations he has with himself. Next time, write a memo. Next time, don't say anything. Next time, do this. And it's nice to see that element to the character. So he's not our usual typical hero going, we need to do this. We need to do that. He has his moment on the uh, on the helicopter, but it's not really throughout the whole movie. And I kind of enjoy that, that you're uh, brought along by a non-conventional lead in an action film. Well, and I think it's come out to California. You'll have a good yeah. time. Good point. It's it's the same thing. Great it's like points. It's John McClane. Didn't, he's not here. He's the only person who can save the day. He yeah. didn't want to be a hero. It's just no one else to do it. You yeah. know, and that's very much Jack Ryan is the only person who can really do it. He has yeah. no, and, and the reluctance of his heroism is what makes him such a great character. And yeah. it's also why, just as with Die Hard sequels, Jack Ryan sequels have a much harder time because he's already been a hero, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And so right from this moment where he is stops and he doesn't want to uh, give this briefing, we cut to him awkwardly clearing his throat because we're in the briefing. This is something we talked about this in Jurassic part is that the storytelling in the cut is that we cut straight from, I don't really want to do this to he is awkwardly doing it. And what we're going to get, it's a huge exposition dump. And this is also, again, it's a screenwriting thing. Why this is so important is that this would be really, really boring if we didn't have a character thing to deal with. What we have to deal with is he is really nervous and awkward. And the scene is even going to have an arc where he doesn't want to be here at all. And then by the end, he does something really aggressive. Yeah. Um, And so what he's saying is that the Red October is sailed, that right after that, the whole fleet went out after him. He describes a little about Ramius. He describes about the Dallas and he talks about the the Caterpillar drive. And one of the generals who's there says, goddamn thing is made to start a war. Admiral Greer, your conclusions. Sir, the data support no conclusions as yet. The absence of activity in the Pacific suggests this could be just an exercise. It may Suppose have it's not an exercise. Suppose this is the beginning of a move against NATO. And then we hear that he sent a letter to the chairman of the fleet. And that's her uncle. Member of the party His uncle. Ramius's wife. Bedoran's her uncle. Right after this guy got the letter, they, we don't know what's in the letter, but right after he got the letter, he went and immediately met with the premier. And, and after that meeting, the Russian Navy was ordered to sink the Red October. Sink her? 
Oh my God, they've got a madman on their hands. And as the discussion about this horrible situation is going on, the camera pushes in and in on Jack Ryan, and it also pushes in on the image of Ramius that's up on the screen, and then he says quietly, you son of a bitch. And then he says loud and slaps his hand. You son of a bitch! You wish to add something to our discussion, Dr. Ryan? It's a great, great moment. I think that's Richard Jordan. I think that's the actor's name who's playing the security advisor, the president who's who's leading the meeting. He was uh, Michael J. Fox's uncle in Secret of My Success. Oh. uh, And he's been a number of, he's another great character actor. He's been a number of things, but he brings the right kind of like matter of fact gravitas to the situation, which I really enjoy. He's a very specific kind of old school American politician type. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he admits great it in just a second. Yeah, too, exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, sir, I was just thinking that perhaps there's another possibility we might consider. Ramius might be trying to defect. Do you mean to suggest that this man has Proceed, come... Mr. Ryan. And Jack goes through his reasoning. He's one of the best captains there. He's trained most of their officers so he could pick his own crew. He's not Russian. He's Lithuanian, raised by his grandfather, who was a fisherman. That's another little plant. He's got no yeah. children. He's got no ties. And today is the first anniversary of his wife's death. Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? And Jack intensely. And Alec Baldwin has a great intensity when he turns it on. I know Ramius, General. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. He's been a maverick his entire career. I actually met him once at an embassy dinner. Have you ever met Captain Ramius, General? And he just slams him down. And in this moment, I love that James Earl Jones, who had said, just talk, give direct answers, reaches his hand over on top of Jack Ryan's going like, (laughs) settle down. It's a great, great, great moment. Then we kind of go back to the meeting. It's like, because they have to assume that this guy is a madman who's going to launch their missiles. Yeah. The the NSA guy uh, dismisses all of them. Everyone starts to leave, except he says... For Dr. Ryan to stay. And as James Earl Jones leaves, he says, I said, speak your mind, Jack, but Jesus. <laughs> That's why you cast James Earl Jones. So that was that right moment for that. <laughs> well, it's so great to see James Earl Jones playing this light, sort of fun guy. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, in a very, very serious role. I mean, the head of the CIA, he's got to make serious decisions, but he's so friendly. Yeah. Um, and then Jack is all alone with the NSA guy who says, You slammed the door on the general pretty hard, Jack. That was not my intention, sir. Oh, yes, it was. He was patronizing you, and you stomped on My opinion, he deserved it. And then this is the line you were talking about. Listen, I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar. And when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. But it also means that I keep my options open. So, let's assume for a minute that you're right, and this Russian intends to defect... What do you suggest we do about it? We definitely grab the boat, sir. He asks how we proceed, and Jack Ryan, and this is the great thing about his character, he's, his superpower is that he's really smart. Yes. And he immediately says, well, we have to do this and this and this and this and this, and most importantly, we got to get a guy on the boat. And the NSA guy says, when do you leave? <laughs> Wait a minute. And this is, again, this is classic Jack Ryan. The general was right. I am not field personnel. I am only an analyst. You're perfect. I can't ask any of these characters to go. One, they don't believe in it. Two, they'd never stake their reputation on a hunch. Whereas you are expendable. Something like that. 
I'll give you three days to prove your theory correct. After that, we'll have to hunt down Ramius and destroy him. What are you doing? McTiernan says that in the language of the hero's journey, the famous Joseph Campbell myth-making story that George Lucas used for Star Wars, this is what's called the call to adventure. This moment, will you do it? Cut to out to sea. We're on another submarine, and now we get to meet Stellan Sarsgaard, the the captain of the sub who's going to hunt Ramius. Once again, <laughs> another non-Russian. <laughs> another non-Russian and another great supporting actor. Yes. You know, who has only a couple of minutes of screen time and he just nails this character. And he is pissed. He's been sitting on the bottom for seven hours and he didn't get the orders in time. What is it? Where are we going? We're going to kill a friend, Yevgeny. We're going to kill Ramius. We're on the Dallas. We see Jones listening to the tape over and over again. We're on the hunt for October. We're having a big meal with our officers. And Tim Curry's talking to other people. And, and then um, Sam Neill comes up and says, do you have the figures on the radiation tests? No. Oh, well, bring them to me. And bring the old ones, too. Now? Yeah, now. And he just ushers him out of the room. And now when he's gone, it's very clear all of these officers are in on it. Before we begin, Captain... I'd like to know exactly what happened to Putin. And Sean Connery's not answering. He's just quietly eating. And there's one guy in particular. You always got to have the one guy who's the jerk. Yeah. And he is really, really pushing on it. I think it's Yuri. I think his name is Yuri, yeah. Uh, I think it's Victor. Victor oh, Victor. Is, Sorry, yeah, yeah, Victor yeah, is his name. Um, and they're all of these looks, and it kind of comes out that, yeah, we killed him. My God. Oh, stop whining, Yuri. But murder. How, how can you So he was murdered. I have no problem with that. The man was a pig. But it's a decision we should have all made together. You are not in command here. If the crew finds out, we could have a mutiny. What do you help talking about? And Sean Connery just quietly eating. Ramius knows how to use silence. So perfectly done. By the way, one thing about this, because Sean Connery is a pro, he knew that he was going to be on set eating all day. So he picked what he was going to eat. (laughs) <laughs> which is really smart. It's like, no, don't let them control what you're going to eat. But right. I, you want to know what he picked? No. What? Beets and onions. Whoa. Right? Okay. <laughs> is there any protein in there? No. Wow. I mean, I, I guess you wouldn't want something heavy and you wouldn't want, like you wouldn't want to eat like something really fatty because you can't eat that all day. That's but true. Beets and onions, your breath is going to be terrible. Like yeah. beets and onions. But maybe they were happy for the silent moments. And there, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, and one of the guys, one of the officers, says, "We can still go back." Yeah. And finally, he breaks his silence. He says, "There will be no going back." And he tells them about sending the letter. And the reaction that goes around the room, including from Sam Neill, his most trusted person, is pretty intense. Well, and this is the thing that I think a lot of people have to understand: when you're the captain. When you're in charge of something, when you're the lead of something, you're going to have to make uncomfortable decisions. I think he knew what they wanted to do. He knew that they would have hesitation. He knew they're young men. They might question their decisions. They might like want to go back. So he purposely shut every door possible so that everyone was on board for this mission all the way until the end. You know, And so sending that letter was a kind of way of making that happen. Killing that guy without having to clear it by, you know, by committee was these are strong decisions that a captain has to make sometimes. And they only are seen as the right decisions in retrospect, not while it's happening. When he reached the New World, Cortez 
burned his ships. As a result, his men were well motivated. <laughs> That's a John Milius line. Of course it is. And, and they're all pissed off, like you had to do it. You couldn't just turn the submarine over to the Americans. You had to make a political statement. Or was it something deeper, Captain? Was it ego, Captain? And he just sloughs it off. We each have our reasons, Victor. My own began the day I was handed the blueprints for this ship. A ship which had but one use. And as for the rest, well, those are things that I alone must carry the burden for. And and he said, and then he says, because uh, people are upset, like they're going to send the whole fleet after us. And he says, yeah, yeah, you're afraid. You should be. I personally give us one chance in three. And then he sends them back to their posts. Mm-hmm. And all of them are leaving. And Sam Neill is almost to the door, and then he turns around and says, Captain, I would never disagree with you in front of the man, you know that. But in this case, Victor is right. It would have been better if you had not informed Moscow. And then Sean Connery says something really interesting. Moscow's not the worry. I know their tactics. I have the advantage. The worry is the Americans. If we meet the right one, this will work. If we get some... Buckaroo. Some buckaroo. <laughs> By the way, the reason for the word buckaroo is they needed a word that they could, someone could say in a Russian sentence and would still be instantly recognizable as an uh, English word. Because if they had said cowboy, which was the original idea, yeah. well, they probably wouldn't say cowboy in English. They would say the, the Russian version of cowboy, if that makes right. sense. And again, this is storytelling in the cut. If we get some buckaroo, cut to jack ryan on the shaking plane that's heading towards the aircraft carrier yeah the exact opposite of a buckaroo nothing <laughs> like a buckaroo and that storytelling is, is uh in the cut and we you have some jokes about uh getting uh airsick and then we end up on an aircraft carrier and we go in to see the admiral in his room and jack ryan is wearing a a, a naval uniform mm-hmm. and uh the admiral is fred thompson fred thompson Senator Good old Fred Thompson. Well, yes, R.I.P. Fred Thompson. Yeah. Yes, yeah, senator was Fred was Thompson. a United States senator. You work for Jim Greer? That's right, sir. And I imagine you'll tell me what all the hubbub's about. Again, Fred Thompson, great, great character actor. Yeah. And we're back on the Dallas. Jonesy is presenting something to the captain, and he talks about hearing singing, and he heard something else, and he washed it through the tape and went it through the computer, and the computer identified it as magma displacement, but he didn't think that's what it was, and so he plays it for him at 10 times speed, and it sounds mechanical. Now, that's got to be man-made, Captain. And he puts out the map, and he says that one of the things the Russian knows the Russians have been doing is running these canyons at high speed because they have super good charts. And he draws a line to this place that he thinks he's going. Have I got this straight, Chauncey? $40 million computer tells you you're chasing an earthquake, but you don't believe it. And you come up with this on your own. Yes, sir. Including all the navigation. Sir, I've got all the locks, Jonesy. You sold me. I love his reaction to, oh, I, pres- I was nervous about presenting this thing to the captain. And the captain listened, and he said, you, you sold me. Yeah. It's a great, great moment. It's also, again, why you cast Courtney B. Vance. Yeah. yeah, and why you cast Scott Glenn. And here's yes. an interesting thing. Scott Glenn had an image in his head of who this captain would be. He's, by the way, a former Marine. He'd served mm-hmm. in the military. And so he had kind of a hard-edged, tough guy. But then the Navy, who's being so cooperative, sends out uh, Scott Glenn and Alec Baldwin onto an actual submarine 
They dive to 600 feet. They spend a couple of days there. The commander of that submarine is a guy named Tom Fargo. This is what Tom Fargo said. He said to his entire crew on the sub, every single report you make to me, you're going to immediately make to Scott Glenn. And then I'm going to whisper to Scott Glenn what the appropriate order is. And then he's going to give the orders. Wow. So he actually was, and he said, there might be a couple of times where they're coming with reports and I'm going to send you to your quarters because he's not allowed to hear whatever that is. But other than that, you're going to be involved in every single piece of the working of the ship. And what Scott Glenn said is that it totally blew his mind because this captain was nothing like he expected. He was super calm, super friendly, super gentle, always relaxed, very, very specific. And he thought after having this experience, like, oh, I don't have to act. I just have to be Tom Fargo. Right. And Tom Fargo later became, you know, he worked all, went all the way up. He was an admiral when he retired. Hmm. We're back on the aircraft carrier. And again, storytelling in the cut. There's an expression in uh, screenwriting, which is enter late and leave early. Yes. Which is we don't want to start the scene from the very beginning. We want to get right to the dramatic parts. And then when we're done with the scene, we want to leave the scene. So when we come back to the scene... It's right after Jack has finished explaining everything, because we don't want to yeah. hear all that again. We just hear the reaction, which is, Christ, that's the craziest notion I've ever heard. Uh, what's the actor's name? You said the other actor's name? Oh, the other actor's name is Daniel Davis. If you remember him, he's the butler in uh, The Nanny, the Fran Drescher show. <laughs> I don't think he's I ever watched it. the guy who plays it. the butler. Yeah, <laughs> no, oh, there, just for people who might have watched it. And it's such a different role than what he'd play on The Nanny. Yeah. So he's, he's very angry. He's upset that... Uh, um, that Jack is wearing the uh, dress blues when he yeah. hasn't earned the dress blues. And I like that little element of uh, yeah. an X factor of, of anger in the situation. What's his plan? His plan? Russians don't take a dump, son, without a plan. <laughs> and then kind of kindly, he says, you, you know, when was the last time you sleep, slept? This is another important little piece in this movie that Jack doesn't get a lot of sleep. Right. And, and he says, why don't you go off and get some rest? And when he leaves, that's when uh, this other officer says, And no matter what his credentials, I don't care for him wearing the uniform. And now we get a little bit of exposition, which is that he actually was in the academy. He was a Marine. He was in a helicopter accident, had to learn how to walk again, spent a year in the hospital. And I love how, how uh, Fred Thompson ends this line. That's up to you, Charlie, but you might consider cutting the kid a little slack. <laughs> it's great. We are back to the Red October, and they're passing Thor's twins, which is exactly what Jonesy said they were going to do. And we meet the navigator, and the navigator says, stop pissing, Yuri. Give me a stopwatch and a map, and I'll fly the Alps with a plane with no windows. <laughs> Pretty arrogant. And we see the Red October going through these cliffs. And I just assumed that this was done with, like, green screen. Mm. And that they did this through uh, mats and they did motion control and they did multiple passes that they composited. That's how they would do that for Star Wars and all the other stuff we'd seen at this, up to this point. Right, right. That's not what they did. They built a giant set. So they have wow. this helicopter hanging from a rig and it's moving through an actual huge set of cliffs. Captain, we are approaching the first turn. 25 seconds to course one. Increase speed to 26 knots and recompute. What? <laughs> Suddenly, that navigator, who was so confident a minute before, gets a little nervous. Too fast, Vasily. Too fast. Those charts are laid down precisely. So many knots on such and such a course for so many seconds. And this thing handles like a pig. That's Victor, I think. Yeah, and it's 15 seconds till the turn, and he says, shall we decrease speed? Negative. And there's countdown. And I love that Sean Connery pulls up, puts on a seatbelt. 
<laughs> because they're starting to tilt as they make yeah. this turn. And by the way, this whole set is built on a gimbal. It's a huge, huge set. It's 45 feet off the ground in a big stage. It can rotate, I think, 40 degrees in any single direction. And wow. so when they're, and they're really packed tight, it's really super difficult to shoot on. And so anytime you see it tilting, it's because the set is really tilting. And by the way, Sean Connery easily got seasick. So he was not a fan of this gimbaled set. Um, and they make the turn and they're successful and there's a big sigh of relief. And then boom, there's a big sound and something has gone wrong with the Caterpillar drive and they have to shut it down. Was there any core damage? Was there any radiation leakage? I don't know yet, damn it. Sean Connery says, well, we just engage the regular propellers. He's like, well, but then we're not going to be silent. And we, now we cut back to the, our NSA, who's meeting with the Russian ambassador. We have lost one of our submarines. Lost it? We fear she may be down and... Uh, You're telling me that this is a massive rescue operation? That is correct. I am terribly sorry. How can we help? <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, puts him back on his heels. Exactly. Because uh, he thought he'd be... Good. By the way, that's Joss Ackland, who was the villain in Lethal Weapon 2. One of the oh, best Oh, you're right. Yeah, one of the best voices in the 80s, for sure. He's great. Yeah. Um, and we're back to... Also not a Russian. Anyway, also not a Russian. <laughs> I always wonder what it must be like to be in a country where someone is... Americans and British are speaking your language probably terribly and yeah. watching this movie. You know, if you're watching... Yeah. If you're a Russian speaker watching this movie, what's it like listening to Sean Connery and Sam Neill butcher <laughs> Russian? That's a good point. Captain Sonar... We've just been overflown by a low altitude multi-engine turboprop. We go to battle stations. Sam asks, should we just bottom the boat? It's like, nope, it's too late. On the plane, they open up the door. They request permission to launch the weapon. They launch the weapon and they drop a torpedo in the water. Torpedo in the water. Stand by. Torpedo has acquired. Launch countermeasures. They launch their countermeasures. This is the first time I ever saw anything like this. Yeah. That they're these things to try to distract or pull off the lock. It goes right through the countermeasures, which, by the way, this is early CGI, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's, it's kind of weak. How long to the turn of the massive? Two minutes, nine seconds. We have no room to maneuver in this canyons, Captain. If the countermeasure doesn't Shut work... Shut up! And this is why we did the scene before where we saw the navigator who talks about the map, and we understand kind of how this thing works, so that at this moment, we can understand what's going on. We had to have that scene before to make this all make sense. Torpedo impact, 25 seconds. The turn, Captain. Not sure. And they say, okay, mark plus 8, 9, 10. Plus 11, plus 12, plus 13 seconds, plus 14, plus 15 seconds. Captain, if we're out of position by so much as a boat length. Torpedo impact now, 15 seconds. This is a really stressful scene. Sound collision. Because the thing about it that this movie does so well, there's no windows in a, in a submarine. Right. This is all maps and instruments. They're flying blind. It's all intellectual and mathematical. And what it does is it gives you this sense of like, oh, they are hurtling towards some giant underwater mountain right. that they're going to crash into. And they were supposed to turn a long time ago. The crew is starting to panic. Captain, we're out of the lake. You're relieved. And then we see his mouth muttering something. And I think he's counting. And we hear the score, and the singing is rising, and finally he yells at the last possible second, Right full rudder! Reverse starboard engine! Right full rudder! Open. So there's a huge tilt in the ship, lots of chaos, music building, and we see the torpedo pass the boat and slam into that mountain. 
they made it. Mm-hmm. But here's the weird thing. They're really shooting at us. Yeah. Captain, why are they shooting at us? They were really shooting at us. We'd be dead by now. But there's a look from Sean to Sam, and the crew is starting to distrust them. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. Uh, we're with the engineer who unveils, unveils the part, and they're basically saying the reason the Caterpillar went down is sabotage. I love the guy they get to tell them that it's sabotage. That, that, that the, you know, the Russian writer-looking guy with the cigarette hanging out of his lips him. and the glasses. It's so perfect. And he's dressed completely different than everybody else. It's brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's great. Jack is in the sh- shower imitating Fred Thompson. The average Ruski son don't take a dump without a plan. <laughs> and then the thought hits him. Wait a minute. We don't have to figure out how to get the crew off. He's already done that. All we have to do is figure out what he's going to do. Cut to him shaving. They'd have to want to get off. How do you get a crew to want to get off a submarine? And he repeats. How do you get a crew to want to get off a nuclear sub? And he stops. What's so great, again, this is great screenwriting, because what they're doing is they're dropping clues. We don't want to say he's going to fake a nuclear accident and the crew not wanting to get die from radiation poisoning will want to get off the sub. If they right. say that, they ruin the surprise. But we do want to plant all the little seeds. You know, and so this is a great by stopping at that moment, it makes the audience thinking about the thing and maybe some people figure out and maybe they don't mm-hmm. cut to again, storytelling the cut. Jack says, I know how he's going to get the crew off and they don't want to deal with him right now because right now there is a plane coming in that's damaged or something. It's a little unclear that they're trying yeah. to get to land on the aircraft carrier. And one other thing they think of is they're not trying to find Ramius. This Jack's comes up with. They're trying to drive him and he looks through the map. And then he sees there's this one American submarine that's off on its own, and that's the Dallas. It's Bart Mancuso's boat. He's had an intermittent contact with what his computer calls a magma displacement. He's got this crazy magma idea. Displacement? Is that like a seismic anomaly? Again, we heard this with Jeffrey Jones. Admiral, is there a way you could get me on board the Dallas? The only way to get you on the Dallas is to fly you out there, chop it. The only way we can get you that far north is to strip it down and turn it into a flying gas can. And what's so great is we got multiple things going on because we're hearing from the radio from the plane and we hear eject, eject, eject. And we see that plane crash into the aircraft carrier. Yeah. Totally brutal. Yeah, sad moment for sure. Well, and it's a real plane really crashing into an aircraft carrier. It's actually from the 1960s. Mm. It's an actual real film. Um, And they run up on deck where they see the smoke, which obviously is not from a plane crash. (laughs) Uh, and I love Fred Thompson here. This business will get out of control. It'll get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through it. And the camera pans to Jack and he turns to look at the helicopter. And then we cut. <laughs> Again, we understand what's going to happen next. Right. And we cut to the helicopter. And he is like petrified, right? Because he had just gotten off that helicopter and he'd been like standing against it or sitting against the back of the helicopter, trying not to throw up, all freaked out. And in this, he almost imitates what you see him do in the shower. When he's holding onto the edge of the, ra- of the, mm. uh, of the stand in the shower, he holds onto the seatbelt uh, as we get further into the helicopter situation. So there's these things where he's holding on to things to help him find a little stability so his mind can work. And it's like, it's almost like if you could take his mind out of his body, he'd be even happier existing in the world. But because he has to deal with his body and all that, he has to stabilize his body in order to get his mind to work. It's interesting. Well, there's one other thing that I remember from the books that they kind of hint at in that speech about his helicopter accident. Yeah, yeah. Is that he's 
in terrible back pain. Oh. So when he's bent over, he's having the shower run on his back, oh, I think, because he's in lots of pain. And the, and the thing is, is like we started with this guy not liking turbulence, right, you know, right, and right. not being able to sleep on a plane. And now he's got to get on this helicopter where they're saying you might have to ditch um, and it takes off. Um, we're back on the Dallas and we hear that Scott Glenn is asleep and that Jonesy is just listening and listening yeah. and listening. And then all of a sudden he raises his hand yeah. and we know oh, he's got him. Do you think they will let me live in Montana? And now, of course, in retrospect, decades later, we know now this is a cliche. You know, I can't wait to get back to the mainland and I'll take Sally out for the date on Friday night. My new convertible. <laughs> You're dead. You're going to die in the next battle. Yes. And this is a basically foreshadowing of Sam Neill being uh, is going to die later on because it's his his vision is so beautiful and so cool. Like he's Montana, this big woman. And I want to have a pickup truck and I want to go into the States and I want to travel from state to state without papers. It's such a cool little dream uh, approach to becoming a citizen of the, of the United States that, you know, he's destined to pass. And it, and the thing is, again, like in all these other ones we talked about, it wouldn't be a good setup if we didn't love the scene. Exactly. Because yeah. Sam Neill is so great. You like him so much. And the oh, joking yeah. about having more than one wife and about all the, all the stuff is so much fun. And what's yeah. so amazing is you have what is a really touching scene that ends up being really thrilling and intense because right. Jonesy has found them. And, the, and we now know that the Dallas is right behind them. Possible aspect change on target. Sonar con eye. Possible target sig based on bearing rate. Con sonar crazy Ivan. All stop, quick, quiet. And we see uh, one sub like right behind the other in the effect shots. And then again, we have our seaman Beaumont to ask what's going on so we can get some more exposition. What's going on, Jonesy? Russian captains sometimes turn suddenly to see if anyone's behind them. We call it Karezia Ivan. Only thing you can do is go dead, shut everything down, and make like a hole in the water. So, what's a catch? Catch is a boat this big doesn't exactly stop on a dime. And if we're too close, we'll drift right to the back of them. And that's what we see. And so now when we go back to Sean Connery and Sam Neill having their conversation, we know this hugely stressful thing is going on, but they don't know anything about it. What about you? What do you look forward to? You can see all the emotion. Like this is not, Ramius is not a guy that talks about himself in this way. And finally, he admits something so simple, which is, I miss the piece of fishing. Like when I was a boy, 40 years, I've been at sea. A war at sea. A war with no battles, no monuments, only casualties. I widowed her the day I married her. Mm. Mm. Great. Great line. Clearly, this is a man of much self-reflection in a yeah. period of time, you know, processing the death of someone who was clearly important to him. And I think he says, maybe a few seconds later, she died while I was at sea. Yep. Uh, and there's a level of guilt and pain there. So in order, it's almost as if he's doing this in honor of her, to be honest with you. And I, and I kind of love that aspect to his character. I think, I, think it's, I think it's deeper than that. I think that's mm. true. I think that... I think he's come to the end of a certain 
thing in his life and that he yeah i think he was 100 percent driven to be the best sub captain you could be and that was his life yeah. and he signed on to this idea of, of of this thing and it's only his wife's death that made him go what is this for yeah and then in fact what he had been doing is working to create to man this weapon which could destroy all life on earth yeah you know and suddenly going what what was all this post guards in the engineering spaces if he can get to the caterpillar he can get to somewhere more vital which again is foreshadowing that's a plant because what is more vital the missiles right uh we're back on the dallas uh and joan says they're returning to course and we say okay give him 30 seconds and then let's follow him but then scott glenn gets a message and I love, by the way, his big glasses. <laughs> Great little touch on his character. And, yes. he's, and, they, and he has a reaction to this message. And they say, what is it? And he says, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> and then the storytelling in the cut. He never said, this is the thing. This is leave early. Yeah. We don't need to have Scott Glenn say, I've got a message that says that a helicopter is coming. And we're going to pick up a guy who wants to get on our boat. We don't have to say that. Because we cut to the helicopter. We know what's in the message. And unfortunately, they can't find the Dallas and they are out of fuel and they got to head back. And the intensity from Alec Baldwin in this moment. Yeah. He says, Mister, if you don't get me on board that goddamn submarine, that just might be what you'll have. You got me. And you got 10 minutes worth of fuel. We stay here 10 more minutes. And this is the moment I was talking about, right? This is an active decision by the main uh, action lead to propel the um, movie along and through a majority of the movie, up until this moment, he's kind of been moved along by his intelligence and everyone else in higher positions, moving him further and further up the chain to get closer and closer to this situation. But it is in this moment where he takes an active role in wanting to be the hero of this uh, um, situation. And I love that. Well, and he's he's a reluctant guy. He had no, Absolutely. never wanted to do this. Yep. But the great thing about Jack Ryan is that he is going to do what's necessary. Yeah. No matter how much he's afraid of flying, no matter how much he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to do this at all. Yeah. He wants to go home. But he is going to do what's necessary because he's the one there and he knows what needs to be done. Yep. And that's it. Yep. Uh, it's a great, great moment. And Alec Baldwin plays it perfectly. And then, of course, at that moment, we see the Dallas. Wherever this guy is, he's in for one hell of a ride. We see the, the submarine. By the way, this is a real submarine that they were shooting from the exterior. This was shot in Puget Sound. They mm. shot it at dawn. They needed bad weather, so they kept having good weather, so they kept not being able to shoot it. Yeah. Um, on the Dallas, we asked the first officer, like, have you ever done this before? He says, yeah, I did it once on a calm day in Hawaii. <laughs> and we kind of hear very quickly something about electricity. Don't touch them. You can get shocked. And there's no reference point. And we're like going, what exactly is going to happen? They say we're going to put a diver in the escape hatch in case he goes in the drink. Right. And we get up there and there's lightning and there's rain and there's wind and the waves are going. And like, man, what's going on? And they lower Jack Ryan out of the helicopter on a line. And the on the, the top of the submarine, there's a guy with a hook trying to grab him. And he's yeah. swinging back and forth. And that is really Alec Baldwin. Yep. He And he says it was his idea. He said, <laughs> of course wouldn't it, it be great if there was a shot of me looking down so you could see me and see me drop in the water? And John McTiernan says, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they, they, they have him hanging there, and they can't make it work. He actually hits the guy. There's electricity goes across the room. One of the guys goes down, 
And finally they go, this is never going to work. We're going to call it off. And he's told Jack Ryan, this is the signal. And this means I'm going to bring you up. Yeah. And the guy pulls on the thing and gives him the signal. And Jack Ryan shakes his head. And then he cuts his own line and falls into the water. There's another active choice, right? I'm actively going to cut this line and jump into the water and try my best to make this happen because I have to, in essence, save the world from a possible nuclear uh, uh, fight or war. So here's the thing. He started, we see that he's afraid of flying. Yes. We see him on planes. We see him choose to go on the helicopter, even though he doesn't want to. It's when it's time to be out of fuel and he's going to have to go in the drink. He says you're going to stay 10 minutes. Yeah. Then they're lowering him down and it's time to bring him back up. And he actually cuts his own line Mm -hmm. and drops into the water. Yeah. John McClane is afraid of flying. What does John McClane have to do at the end of the movie? He wraps a hose around himself and jumps off the side of a building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's saying to himself, this is, you know, I forget what the line is. This is this is a bad idea. This this is crazy. This is crazy. This is crazy. Yeah, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, there's so many similarities uh, between them. It's just fascinating to me. And then we're inside the Dallas and Scott Glenn is pissed. And oh, again, yeah. we see the close, close quarters. And they, they actually did shoot a little bit in, a, in a, an old diesel submarine, but most of it is on these sets. Yeah. Um, and he charges through down the, uh, the corridor, goes down this ladder, and there is Jack Ryan coughing and sputtering and all wet on the ground. And he says, how do you do, Captain? It's a pleasure to be on board with mm-hmm. a big smile. And the look from Scott Glenn of like, <laughs> is just, just great. We're back with our ambassador and our NSA guy, and he's asking to see the president because... The submarine in question is commanded by Captain Marco Ramius. Just before he sailed, he posted a letter to Admiral Yuri Padorin in which he announced his intention to, to fire his missiles on the United States. So one of your submarine captains has gone insane. What do you want from us? You offered your assistance. Yeah, that was a rescue mission. Now you want us to help you hunt him down, kill him. I have been instructed to ask your president for precisely that. I, so I, I, I listened to the book before we did this. Okay. Um, I think the movie is so much better than the book. Mm-hmm. And, and the book is good. It's, it's entertaining. Two reasons. The first reason is that the book is much more spread out. So what, what the movie does is focus much, much more on Jack Ryan. And there's things that other characters are doing. Like we follow the Jeffrey Jones character more. We follow other people more. And they really focus it in on the hero's journey of Jack Ryan. And they make it much tighter. And things happen, like there are things that happen all together. For instance, the way the climactic action sequence works happens all at the same time. Which is in the mm. book, it happens at separate times. Right. The, the, but the other thing and this is just so amazing, is that in the book, basically the entire U.S. Navy believes that he is defecting. Yeah. In the movie, Jack believes that he's defecting, but most everybody else thinks that we got to kill him because he's going to launch his missiles. Yep. And Got to have that conflict. That conflict is so crucial to what makes this movie good. Yep. Because there's no way to know. And then again, we cut in, we enter late, because the first thing we hear when we go back to Dallas is... Find him. We already found him. We had to break off to come pick you up. Which means we're already in the middle of this conversation. They offer Jack a smoke. I think this is the third time someone's offered him a cigarette. He refuses. And, And there's so much disdain from Scott Glenn, and Jack tries to explain himself. He says the sub is the Red October, and there's a possibility he is attempting to defect. There's a big reaction. And before he can describe it, Scott Glenn has gotten a message. You say the boat's called the Red October. That's right. Skipper's Ramius. Right. 
It seems the circumstances have changed somewhat, Mr. Ryan. And he hands Jack a paper and walks away. And Jack reads the message. And the message is basically, you have to destroy the Red October. Yeah, yeah, so what yeah. the ambassador said to the NSA guy has now gone through the American fleet. And those are the orders. And we go up on the bridge. And by the way, there are a lot of actual Navy guys who are running, who are actors on this scene. And uh, one of the interesting things, this is mostly built on the same gimbals. There are three submarines, but they're mm. really all the same sets. And there are two things we did. They do. First of all, the cinematographer, who is Jan de Bont, cinematographer oh. of Die Hard and also director of Twister and Speed. Yeah. Um, the big thing that he did was they had to differentiate the t three submarines with light. So the uh, Dallas is red light. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård's submarine is uh, green light, right. and the uh, October is blue light. That's the first thing. The second thing they did was they when they re they turned the October into the Dallas, uh, McTiernan brought in aircraft designers, and what he said was all of the gauges, the entire layout is exactly the same. The October and the Dallas, exact same layout. The gauges are the same. The equipment is the same, and he said just take all the surfaces and replace them with materials you'd use in aircraft design. And so they replace them all and that's how you get the Dallas. Wow. Captain, I have to talk to you. No, no. Tommy, make your depth 1,200 feet, 20 degrees down angle. And the thing goes on the gimbal and starts going down and Alec Baldwin is so great because he's so awkward and nervous and is looking at that gauge as those numbers go up and he has the realization of like, Oh, I'm hundreds of feet underwater. <laughs> he doesn't want to be there either. And, and one of the things, by the way, in the, as the camera moves through here, there's no way to get a dolly on the set. It's too small in the gimbal. You can't have a, a dolly on a set that's suddenly tilting 45 degrees. So right. instead, the camera is on a giant crane with a boom arm that goes into the set. And all the crew members are tied in with ropes and are wearing hard hats. This is really crazy dangerous stuff as this set is moving around please listen to me two minutes that's all plot time to intercept this track four minutes captain very well mr ryan two minutes the calm of scott glenn to have this conversation with jack ryan while simultaneously going into battle and having mm -hmm. to give orders it's amazing yeah i love what he does i understand that message it makes perfect sense Look at the situation. Ramius intends to defect. The Russians know this, which is why they've been trying to sink him for the past two days, but they haven't been able to. So they're trying Captain, I have a firing solution. Very well. Again, Alec Baldwin is so great in this scene. Oh, yeah. Captain, you have to listen to me. The Russians will stop at nothing to prevent Ramius from defecting. They are desperate. They've invented this story that he's crazy because they need our help to sink him before he can safely contact us. Weapons control. I want full safeties. We're so close. I don't want those fish coming back at us. It's another plant mm -hmm. because that's something that is going to come back later on in the film. Yep. He says, I know this man. And Scott starts to go and, J and Jack goes for his last desperate attempt. Has he made any crazy Ivans? What difference does that make? Because the next one will be to starboard. Why? Because his last was to port? No, because he always goes to starboard in the bottom half of the hour. Flood tubes one and two assigned presets. Warm up the weapons. Captain, there has to be some way you can establish contact without violating your orders. I'm telling you, he wants to defect. Mr. Thompson, call Chief Watson to the con with his sidearm. And just as this happens, we hear Jonesy goes, Consort on Crazy Ivan. And Scott Glenn should give an order to actually go silent at this moment, make like a hole in the water. That's what they did before. Right. But he doesn't. And they say, Captain, he's turning. Which way is he turning, Jonesy? To the starboard, sir. Give the man a chance. McTiernan says that give the man a chance is the whole theme of the movie. 
ah. that this is a Cold War film and that part of the Cold War lives on the idea that we can't trust the other side. Right. Give the man a chance. And this is happening right as Gorbachev is opening up the Soviet Union. Mm. Give the man a chance. Yeah. You know? Makes sense. Um, okay. And Scott Glenn, instead of going make like a hole in the water, says all back full. And they go, what? He says all back full. And that means they're cavitating, which means the Red October can hear them. All right, Ryan, we just unzipped our fly. Mr. Thompson, open the outer doors, firing point procedures. Now, if that bastard so much as twitches, I'm going to blow him right to Mars. <laughs> On October, they realize this sub is behind him, that they have their outer doors open. Flood tubes three and four and plot a solution. Hi, right, Captain. Flood tubes three and four, plot solution. So I open the torpedo tube doors, sir? No. And on the Dallas? Consul, our target's flooded his tubes. Has he opened his outer doors? Negative, Captain. He's just sitting there. Hold popping. Target's coming shallow. What's that mean? It means he's a very cool customer, you Russian. We see both subs pop up. We see their periscopes. Uh, I love that the periscope... Everything on the October is chrome and shiny. And Sean's periscope is chrome and shiny. Uh, mm-hmm. And he looks through it. And Scott Glenn says, okay, you wanted to talk to him. What do you want to say? U.S. told you intend a missile launch break. If intention is other, will you discuss option break? Can he acknowledge with a single ping? Yeah, he can. Question is, will he? And Scott Glenn sends it with Morse code, and Sean Connery sees it and reacts. Verify our range to target. One ping only. I kept And Jack goes, okay, tell him to plot the course to, I need a chart, I need a chart. Goes through the chart, no, 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 finds this place and says, send him this. You out of your mind. Just send it. And it's amazing that this guy can send crucial Morse code with his thumb while also talking, <laughs> also chatting with Jack Ryan. Tell me one thing. You know he was going to go to starboard. I didn't. I had a 50-50 chance and I needed a break. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love, love Scott Glenn. And Scott Glenn, without missing a beat, goes, that's all right. Uh, my Morse is kind of rusty. I might be uh, telling him something, the measurements of uh, Lily's Playboy model or something. <laughs> that was brilliant. It's a great, great moment. And again, Sean gets the message and acknowledges it with a single ping. Captain, I, I, I just... Give me a ping, Vasily. One ping only, please. And Scott asks, what the hell is this about? Russians want us to sink her. We might have to do that. Now the crew on the October are giving very suspicious looks. And the engineer comes up the stairs and he exchanges a look with Sean. So we yep. it's so they're doing such a great job of setting up all the things we have to set up, and suddenly the alarms go off. Nuclear alarms, we see flashing lights, we see steams, there's lots of frightened people with the crew. Get us to periscope depth. We'll ventilate with the outside air. Hi, Captain. And Tim Curry, the doctor, is there and he says, Tim, we've got a level one radiation leak. Every surface of the ship is contaminated. Simply changing the air won't do. We've got to get the men off. Sir, we have been sabotaged. Who said anything about sabotage? What I love about this movie is that there's, this is actually a con. This is yeah. like the sting. And the people that they're conning is the crew. Yeah. And the representative that we see getting conned is Tim Curry. He is the mark. 
And that in a con movie, the key is you have to get the mark to actually want to do the thing that you want them to do. And that yeah. is to get the crew off the boat. And now you have Tim Curry arguing with Sean Connery, you must get the crew off the boat, which he agrees to reluctantly, which is exactly right. how a con works. <laughs> and and Sam and Vasily Sam Neill is the one who says, "Captain, you have to do this," and actually forces Sean Connery to say, "We got to go up to the surface and evacuate the men onto the deck." Yeah, we're up on deck. And by the way, this was shot in uh, Long Beach, and it was inside the breakwater, so there was no waves. So they mm. take a whole bunch of boats and they start f going around the Red October, which is on the barge. In order oh. to make a wake and waves, it got a lot of people seasick, particularly Sean Connery. Apparently, Sean Connery never forgets a line, is always super prepared, and he started dropping lines, and he couldn't, because he was so, <laughs> felt so terrible, he couldn't perform very well. We got these rafts that they're laying, laying out on top of the ship. This whole rig is made to sink, because they have to submerge, which is coming up. And yeah. so, Jan de Bont and his camera crew are on the rig as it starts to sink, and they think it's going to sink slow. Oh, man. It doesn't sink slow. It sinks fast. Like three Panavision cameras go to the bottom of the, oh, of the, of the water. Wow. They're destroyed. <laughs> there are hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, for these cameras. And you have a whole bunch of cameramen and crew members who are swimming now yeah. who did not expect to be swimming. Yeah, this is a difficult shoot this day. And, and <laughs> Sean says to the doctor that no officer is going to spend more than 20 minutes below deck. Tim Curry says, yeah, that's going to be fine. And they spot a U.S. frigate. U.S. probably Perry class. He's signaling. Red, October... Colton, stay where you are. Do not attempt to submerge or you will be fired upon. And Sean Connery says to Tim Curry, You will go with the crew. The officers and I will submerge beneath you and scuttle the ship. Tim Curry, with a look of just wonder on his face, says, You'll receive the order of Leonard for this captain. And we hear the choir rising, and Tim Curry tells the crew members that the captain is going to scuttle the ship, and he's like a hero now to them. On the ship, they say he's submerging, and, and the captain says, put a shot across his bows. Apparently, I heard that that's Shane Black, the writer. Yes, yes. Is that captain there? Uh, the rafts take off the October, which is diving, and the doctor watches as the helicopter passes over the rafts. Seahawk 1, release on my command. Drop. Now, now, now and we see another torpedo go into the water. And we're in the sort of control room, which I think is on that frigate, and on there we have the guy who's at the controls, and he's saying that the range to the target is 900, 800, and if you look at this shot, on just the right side of the shot, you see two hands that are dark skin. Mm. We don't know what that is, and the torpedo is coming closer and closer to the October, and we see that hand reach down and open up a little thing with a key, and flip a switch right before the torpedo is about to hit and the torpedo self-destructs before getting to the October yep. and the camera pulls back and we reveal it's James Earl Jones with Jeffrey Jones behind him. <laughs> no relation. And he says, no, understand commander that torpedo did not self-destruct. You heard it hit the hull and I was never here. Great, great moment. And now we hear, because we have this other plant, advise Dallas to get the DSR moving, the DSRV moving, which is that little submarine. And now we see that that little submarine is on the back of the Dallas. I don't know how they did all this so fast. <laughs> like got Admiral Greer all the way out here, got the DSRV yeah. out here, set up this whole plan. And they get into this little thing. The guy who's driving this is actually a Navy commander who really drives these little ships. Oh, wow. That's, that's a, an actual guy. And there's this moment where Scott Glenn pulls out his pistol and cocks it. And Jack notices that. And they 
make it over to the October and they seal up. And now Scott Glenn offers Jack Ryan a gun. He's defecting. You're willing to bet your life on that? And then Jack Ryan takes the gun. Yeah. Even the most seasoned analyst will plan for every possible scenario. Yeah. I love that they bang on the hatch with a hammer. Yeah. And they open up the hatch and there is this Russian officer and we're back to speaking Russian. And by the way, this guy is actually Russian and he actually served in the Russian military. Oh, finally, one Russian. And we head to the bridge and then we have this face-off that is just so great because the situation is so bizarre and yeah. so awkward. And we have our Russian officers that are standing sort of at, a, at ease, I guess, with their hats under their arms and Scott Glenn kind of looking around and nobody knows what to do. And the engineer, the guy who, whose look, as you said, is just fantastic, is like mid-fixing something <laughs> and frozen. And how do we break the silence? Jack Ryan, who has been offered cigarettes and refused them throughout the whole movie, gestures to the engineer for a cigarette, gives him one, lights it for him. He inhales. There's a long look. <laughs> There's a look from Scott Glenn. The engineer starts to laugh and says in subtitled Russian, he's turning green. And everyone laughs. Yeah. Here's my question. Why did Jack Ryan do this? Well, he's the only one that's been the bridge between the possibility of him defecting and uh, not defecting. He's the one that's believed the most since the beginning. So why shouldn't he be the one that like takes the chance to break the tension and cross the line uh, and have a connection with the Russian guy? So that, and it kind of eases everybody else's uh, uh, nerves about the situation. Did okay, but here's so <clears throat> here's my question though. Well, let me, yeah. oh, so in the books, Jack Ryan, we hear that he was a smoker who quit. Mm-hmm. So that character in the books, it's he's in a really stressful situation. It makes sense that right. suddenly he wants a cigarette. Right. That's not in the movie. So right. my question is, did is Jack Ryan in the movie a smoker who has been, has quit and is stressed out and genuinely wants a cigarette right. in this really stressful moment? Or is he a person who doesn't smoke and is looking around and trying to figure out a way to break the tension and thinks this might work and then takes inhales and feels sick because he's not a smoker? I think the second seems more logical from what we've been presented in the movie, right? Uh, and plus, it's old, the old traditional thing of offering the cigarette, right? Totally. We see that, we see, we've seen that in numerous war films, and we've certainly seen it in, uh, um, in prison as well. The offering the cigarette is like the uh, connection. Uh, so, yeah, that makes sense, sense to me that he would do it just to break the tension. And the next thing that happens is that <clears throat> Sean Connery looks and notices the sidearm that Scott Glenn is wearing. Right. And in Russian, subtitled, he says um, that he is some kind of a buckaroo, which is the right. word that we heard before. And Jack Ryan laughs. So funny. The captain seems to think you're some sort of cowboy. And in Russian, Sean Connery says, you speak Russian. New Parosky. A little. It's wise to study one's advice. Advi- it's wise to study one's advice. I can't say the word. It's wise <laughs> to study one's adversary. And Sean Connery now in English says, It is. Again, a beautiful transition of how we get out of Russian and into yeah. English. What gives you the right to fire on my ship? Your signal said nothing of a torpedo. Ryan. It was necessary to maintain the illusion for your crew. You sent the signal. That's correct, sir. He suddenly realizes that Jack Ryan is the right person and asks, how did he know that the, the reactor failure was um, false? Well, that was a guess, but it seemed logical. And there's a long pause, and Sean Connery thinks about it, and then he says very quickly, 
Very well. <laughs> and what I like about the moment is that it's obvious that he once he processed that that is that that all makes sense, he accepts yeah. it all. Yep. There's no hesitation. Yep. And then very formally, he walks up to Scott Glenn and says, I present you the ballistic missile submarine Red October. My officers and I request asylum in the United States of America. And then they hear a noise. Torpedo! The Americans are shooting at us again! Pitch is too high. The torpedo's rushing. And then again in the cut, James Earl Jones, what do you mean another torpedo? In the Dallas, they see the other sub. So now why don't I have a detonation? The weapon enabled on the far side of the target. It passed Red October before it armed. You had the wrong range. Fire again with the right settings. And suddenly, in the October, we're in battle. Melican, get me power. Get that damn thing off my boat. It's off! And I love they go to the guy with the little sub, and he goes, Hey, I think somebody just shot a torpedo at us. Oh, shit, Buckwheat, get the hell out of here! Wait, where am I... <laughs> oh, you think so, Buckwheat? Yeah. Get off of the ship. And he goes, where am I supposed to? And they just close the hatch on him. <laughs> and now we're up on the raft and they see, you know, that something's going on and they go, yay, the captain's fighting them. And I love that. I love the reactions of all the Russian sailors to what they think is happening. Yeah. Uh, Sean Connery tells Ryan to sit in the chair to actually drive the submarine, yeah. which I think is ridiculous. <laughs> but in for- oh. It, yeah. It's a movie. It's a movie. This is where it's like, right. it's a movie. Torpedo in the water, bearing 315. Make range 7,000 yards. Stay right, 315. Wait a minute, that's heading into torpedo. And Sean Connery repeats his order. Steer right till this reach, 315. No, that's wrong. Ryan, don't turn that goddamn wheel. And Jack Ryan is perfectly straged. He's in between the two captains. <laughs> he looks from one to another. And Sean Connery very calmly says, Three one five, and Ryan steers to three one five, heading right into the torpedo. And again, we get the storytelling in cuts. On the Dallas, we hear he's doing what? On the ship, we hear James Earl Jones say, "Mother of God." Estimate range three thousand yards, closing awfully fast. And now we have a countdown. It's twenty seconds to impact. And in the silence, Sean Connery says. What books? <laughs> I think this is such a great just, moment. Just chilling out, breaking the tension. That is great. <laughs> and, and, and Jack Ryan, who's obviously freaked out, has to go, yeah. has to actually pitch his book. I wrote a biography of Admiral Halsey called The Fighting Sailor. And Sean, I love this. I know this book. Torpedo impact. Your conclusions were all wrong, Ryan. Ten seconds. Halsey acted stupidly. <laughs> I think that's so great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's the guy who's the smartest guy in the movie, who's figured everything out, who is so perceptive. And yeah. now, oh, that Ramius doesn't like his book and <laughs> thinks he's all wrong. That's great. And the tension builds. Jonesy takes off his headphones. The torpedo is closer. We've reached the end of the countdown. It hits the October. It doesn't explode. I'll be damned. What happened? Combat tactics, Mr. Ryan. By turning into this torpedo, the captain closed the distance before it could arm itself. That's cool. Right now, Captain Tupolov is removing the safety features on all his weapons. He won't make the same mistake twice. And he goes over to talk to Sam Neill, and Sam Neill sees who? The cook. Yeah, the With cook. a gun who opens fire. <laughs> and he pushes Sean Connery out of the way. And then suddenly we notice that Sam Neill has fallen. Yeah, man. 
And Sean opens up his shirt, which is, you know, soaked in blood. And there's a moment, and he says, I would like to have seen Montana. And dies. Um, and as you said, it's it's totally set up. Yeah. And it's just horrible. Yeah. It's still effective as hell because Sam Neill dies quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's effective because he does not make a big deal out of being shot. It's the sadness and the shock yeah. uh, that consumes him in that moment. And he says that one last thing. And at least he has someone like Sean Connery by his side when he dies. So he's able to give him his last words. And it's, it was a great connective tissue moment but you know it's incredible because in other films there might be like oh he's dead or oh you know they're more of a i don't know just more of a big deal about it but there's bigger things happening here and so they don't even have time to grieve sam neil's death they've got to focus on uh what stellan skarsgård is about to do next uh attacking them in their sub well and the next thing that happens is a light comes up on the panel because the cook is in the missile bay yeah yeah he can't launch a missile no but he can blow one out and Sean Connery says to Scott Glenn, the American captain, you have the con. Sean Connery starts to go, and Scott Glenn says, Captain, wait, and hands him the gun. Yeah. And that's a, it's a great moment because now there is trust. Right. Sean, right. Sean Connery has given him his ship, and yeah. Scott Glenn has given him his gun. So now he's the buckaroo. I like it. <laughs> You're right. He is now the buckaroo. <laughs> and then he turns to Ryan. Don't just stand there. Go with him. And then immediately Scott Glenn takes over. You, you speak English? Yes, sir. Get your butt over here. Stellan Skarsgård does order the safety features off. Uh, Sean Connery and Jack Ryan are chasing after them. And there's a great moment where as they're walking towards the missile area, there is the cook up above them. And there's these great jump cuts into him. As he opens fires, Sean Connery gets hit. And there, there's kind of a quiet moment. And he says, Is that door the only way out of here? Yes. Well, let me get past you. And he starts to go. And then Sean Connery says, Be careful what you shoot at. Most things in here don't react too well to bullets. And Jack turns his head, and the camera cuts as he turns, and what do we see behind him? The row of nuclear weapons lined up, all in red. And it's a kind of amazing shot, I think. Like, Mm -hmm. it's an amazing shot thematically, because... I mean, intellectually, we know that this ship has nuclear weapons and that it's, we've talked about that it's a first strike ship and that it could, you know, rain down all this destruction. But I think for me, it's not until you see this shot that you go, oh my God, like how many, how missiles they are, how huge this ship is. Yeah. It's just a, and it's a really disturbing, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this is a particularly um, uh, political movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that moment, it like really makes you see the Cold War and all of its insanity, you yeah. know, right laid out in front of you. Ryan looks up, he sees this walkway, he takes off his jacket, he climbs. The shots are just beautiful. Jan de Bont is a great cinematographer. And he's crawling along this like walkway, and I love we get a little Alec Baldwin Sean Connery impression. <laughs> Ryan, some things in here don't react well to bullets. Of course that was Alec's idea. Of course it was. And who knew at the time? We didn't know that Alec Baldwin had all of these impressions that he yeah, could pull out. Right. Another torpedo, Captain. It went active the moment it was launched. It's acquired us in his homing. Left full rudder. He's off in your bow plane. Yes, sir. I think he's got us. And then here comes the Dallas. Way to go, Dallas! And now we're on board the Dallas. And they go, okay, now the torpedo has acquired us. Let's hope this works. And he says, put us on the roof. 
and re they release countermeasures. They do a full blow, and we see that sub go up and up. And the guy, the commander on the Dallas now says, Come on, Big D. And there's this long shot of the surface, and we see that submarine come up through and the Russian sailors look and they see the sub shoot up in the air almost like a great white shark breaching or a whale breaching and they say the captain scared them out of the water because <laughs> they think that that was um, that that was uh, Red October that scared yeah. that sub yeah uh, that is a real submarine that is uh, shooting up out of the water like that that is not oh, a special nice. effect nice. it is an amazing shot oh yeah um we're back with Jack, and he catches the cook. Goddamn cook! And the cook is sitting there with two wires. And those wires mean they're going to die. And Ryan yeah. is holding the gun at him, and he's sweating, and the cook smiles, and Jack Ryan kills him. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great, great... Because, again, Jack Ryan's going to do what's necessary. Yep. He doesn't want to kill yep. that guy. And there isn't that kind of, like... Uh, speech between the two, you know, why no. are you doing this? Why would you do this? And the Russians, the guys, uh, hate America. America always trying to take things. Blah, blah, blah. There's none of that. There's just this this cocky Russian with these two wires just about to hit, and there's Jack Ryan just staring at him, dripping with sweat. And the mo it's, I think it's a brilliant decision by McTiernan to not have any words here and just a meeting of the eyes between yep. these two, and then boom, what he has to do in that situation. Well, and this is what I was saying about the differences with the book, because there is a thing with the cook, and there is oh. a thing with the other submarine, and there is a thing with getting the uh, Russian sailors off the boat, and there is a thing with faking the destruction of the Red October, but mm -hmm. they all happen sequentially at different times, and this has them all happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the skill of screenwriting and the skill of editing to make all, keep all these stories alive and make this all clear, this is a really complicated movie. And yes. yet because we've planted all these things about the radiation, about the saboteur, about the other uh, submarines, about what the Russians thinks, what the crew thinks, what you know, all these characters, they planted it all so well that now they can just pay it off, pay it off. They knock down all these targets all yeah. at once and now we're going to do our last one how close is that alpha jonesy thousand yards dead astern going to port reverse your turn aye sir returning straight at him torpedoes still on our tail the hard part about playing chicken is knowing when to flinch and we hear the beeps getting faster and faster collision in 400 yards 350 300 captain and right at the last moment he says right full rudder 30 degree down in that calm voice, yep. uh, that icy, cool voice. And then we're back on the sh other sub with Stellan Skarsgård. And his first officer says, You are an ass. You've killed us. <laughs> and there's a reaction and a huge explosion, yeah. which we see from the surface. It's a great explosion, underwater explosion. And what all the Russians do, they take off their hats. Yeah. Because they think that was Ramius. That was the Red October blowing up, which, of course, it isn't. Cut to, back to our ambassador and the NSA guy. <laughs> this has been a terrible tragedy, Mr. Ambassador. And I can only stress that if you'd come to us earlier, it might have been avoided. It's in the ambassador, literally hat in hand. I appreciate your candor in the matter. And I yours, Andre. And both of them are lying. Of and course. both of them know the other one is lying. Of course, yeah. That's what's such a great moment. It's called and politics. And then the, the ambassador says, uh, there's one other matter I'm reluctant to bring up. <laughs> one of our submarines, an Alpha, was last reported in the area of the Grand Banks. We have not heard from her for some time. 
You've lost another submarine. <laughs> you lost another submarine. That's a great, I love it. great joke. And now it's night, and we're on the summer on the Red October up in a river. It is very, very blue. Um, I like it. Some people have said that they think it's kind of ridiculously blue, but I oh, think it looks really? cool. I think it looks oh, really Jesus cool. Jesus Christ! Yeah. How could you nitpick that? For God's sakes, they're in Maine. <laughs> I don't know. John, how long have you been doing what you're doing? <laughs> You've heard the nitpickers. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. There are a lot was, of yeah. With such a great movie, I always think if you try, if you find the most minute thing to, to nitpick about, is because you're trying to show off. And honestly, nobody gives a shit. Nobody really gives a shit. Yeah, so. I agree. I grew up around here. My grandfather took me to fish off that island right over there. And grandfather and fishing, that is obviously a key connection between these characters. And Sean Connery says, there's one question you haven't asked me yet. Why? Yeah. Now, there are those who believe we should attack the United States first. Settle everything in one moment. Red October was built for that purpose. And this is, this is really his answer. Maybe some good will come from it. A little revolution now and then is a healthy thing, don't you think? Which, by the way, is a is kind of a ripoff. That's Thomas Jefferson, who said a, re- a little mm. rebellion now and then is a good thing. And the sea will grant each man new hope. As sleep brings dreams of home. Christopher Columbus. That's not Christopher Columbus. He never said that. <laughs> that was written by the writer, Larry Ferguson. Um, but it's a great line. And Ryan yeah. smiles and says... Welcome to the new world, sir. And we hear the chorus rising, and the camera passes off of them, and then we cut to an airplane, and the stewardess is checking on passengers, and there is a sleeping Jack Ryan with a bear sitting next to him in the plane. Yeah. And that is the end of The Hunt for October. Yeah. Oh, a good ending. Good ending. Yeah. What's one of the interesting things is that right around when this movie came out, in March of 1990, the Communist Party was removed from the leadership of the Soviet Union, and the Cold War came to an end. Yep. And they were worried that this would hurt the movie. Yeah. Um, which I don't think it, it would have. I mean, it is harkening back to this Cold War moment. It didn't hurt, hurt the movie at all. It, uh, it grossed over $200 million. It was a very successful movie. It launched Alec Baldwin as a true movie star. Um, it was nominated for three Oscars, sound editing, mixing, and film editing. It won for sound editing. That's the only Oscar it won. And when it came to do the sequel, Alec Baldwin said no. Yeah. This is something that I, I remember. Ha- this is one of my first memories ever of an actor big-timing a situation. Uh, and Because Baldwin was all set to do this. But he was doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof on Broadway with, I think, Jessica Lange, who I think he gets into a relationship with or marries. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but says, I've committed to this. I'm, I'll happily do the movie after I do this run. And the studio is like, we're not waiting for you. We can make this money. And they moved on. And apparently Alec asked for a lot of money and the studio balked at that. And so it was a weird situation to kind of bite the hand that fed him in this way. And I don't know if there's anything in the commentary that kind of gives more, uh, 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 I don't know, more explanation for the situation, but that's how I remember things happening. And I was really upset because 
This was such a. It's still my favorite Jack Ryan. I know people 100%. love Harrison Ford. People love. People actually like Ben Affleck in the some of all fears. But to me, this is the best Jack Ryan still, and it's so unfortunate that we never got to see Alec do it one more time. I get the sense as well that he didn't really want to be a movie star. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. Like he he. It, it's like you've said this before of like a, a character actor in an ingenue body or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Is that's kind of Alec Baldwin? Is he he wants to play character parts and he wants to do theater and he wants to, I mean, he likes doing, right. he loved doing 30 Rock and he, I mean, because who knew that he was just this hilarious person? Yeah. We didn't know that. He likes doing Saturday Night Live and all this stuff. Is, and you know, and he plays small parts in, you know, like in, um, What's the the departed or uh, you know yeah, all sorts departed. of films? Yeah, all sorts of films will come up and play a small part because he's such a good actor. And I yeah. get us. I mean, and I I almost feel like he kind of. I I don't know this, but like mm-hmm. I think the cat on the hot tin roof and asking a lot of money was him's way of kind of like I'm not going to break up with you, but I'm going to do a bunch of stuff that's going to make yeah. you dump me. Yeah, you he's know, manipulated situations so it makes it almost impossible to meet his demands. But yeah. I, I think, and you know, we just did a whole bunch of Indiana Jones. I obviously love Harrison Ford, but yeah. I think Harrison Ford is completely different. And that what because what Jack Ryan brings is that reluctance and that nerdiness and that mm-hmm. I'm not really a hero, but I will be a hero if I have to be. Mm-hmm. Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones and Han Solo. He's yeah. already a hero. We can't not see him as a hero. And so him playing Jack Ryan, it becomes just much more of a traditional spy thriller hero yeah. character rather than this reluctant and quirky analyst who has to do these things. Yeah. It's just yep. different. Uh, so obviously this you know, makes Tom Clancy even bigger, launches the books become even bigger bestsellers. We have a whole bunch of movies. We have a TV show that I've never watched. Um, yes, yeah, all right. It's not that great. That's what I figured. Um, and uh, I think we've reached the time for final thoughts. John, oh. do you have final thoughts on Hunt Absol- for Red October? Absolutely. It was great to revisit this one again. You know, uh, uh, it feels like one of the last 80s movies, even though it comes out in 1990s. Like, it's got the vestiges of the best of those late 80s films in terms of action. You have a fantastic leading man here in Alec Baldwin, who's just about to jump into superstar status. You have, once again, on the heels of The Untouchables, on the heels of Indiana Jones' Last Crusade, you have yet another crown jewel in the Sean Connery renaissance in this film. But more than anything else, it is incredibly difficult to make a successful film about the sea or on the sea, an incredibly successful submarine film. And it does all of this without having to downplay to the audience or talk down to the audience. It explains everything out. You grab it, you grab it quickly. You have great character actors in this film to give it a seriousness and a weight that other actors might not be able to convey. And then overall, it tells a positive message, a positive story, this idea of something that is built to just create division, create war, create distance should be stopped by those who know better and and like destroyed or stockpiled and this in essence the red october becomes the ark they put this thing away mm. probably in some warehouse <laughs> uh, to never to be pulled out again because of what it can do and so i love the message here and what uh, sean connery says at the end he says you know um, something that's built to do something like this should not be in existence and a little rebellion or a little revolution is good and I love the message overall of the movie uh, and, and by the way if you strip all of that away it's still one of these tight taut action thrillers that you walk out uh, feeling great that you've seen yeah, it's funny you kind of just gave my, my final thoughts which is oh, that okay. yes this message is there and, 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 it's a, and it's a great one but really yeah. this is just a tight beautifully made film 
every single parts from the big ones to the small are fully developed with great character actors playing it. You have a full star turn from Alec Baldwin. You have a beautifully constructed script, beautiful cinematography from Jan de Bond, a really tight engine of a story and great, great thrills and reversals and twists and a lot of fun. I just, yeah. you know what? This is just one of those movies that I just, it's a pleasure to watch. And I would, yeah. I, you know, I'd spend a couple of days like researching it. I'd watch it again right now. Yeah. Um, so that so that's what we think of The Hunt for Red October. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page to tell us your thoughts. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files on Instagram at the Cinephiles podcast. You can support us on patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. You can buy or stream Hunt for Red October on Cinephiles.net and you can subscribe to the show and leave your reviews on iTunes, on YouTube, on Stitcher, on Spotify. And you can reach me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram at SR Morris one. John, how about you? Well, you can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And please, as I've been saying every week, please come and subscribe to my YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash John Roca says so many great things happening there. The geek buddies doing their stuff. I just launched a new show called the outlaw nation show where you can call in or you can Skype in or uh, uh, just come in through the stream yards and I ask, answer your question about whatever's going on in your life or in your world. All of that, that's the part of the new show, essentially a call-in show. That's what we're doing on the Outlaw Nation. So, so much so much great content coming through. And now that the, uh, this coronavirus is going on and people are kind of being uh, uh, told to stay home, come and join and be a part of the Cinephiles as well. And make sure you pass this on to other people who might be staying home and you know give them something to distract themselves and enjoy themselves. So please retweet the show and with that hashtag, the Cinephiles, because when you retweet something... Uh, or tweet about it, it's you uh, kind of putting your stamp of approval on the podcast for other people, your followers, to come aboard and take a chance on the show. And you know what? I, I almost never do this, and I should do it more often, but I'm going to plug my own stuff, which is yeah. you should check out my film, The Assistance, which stars Joe Montaigne, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach. It's available on iTunes. And check out my Great White Shark documentary, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, which is for free on Amazon Prime. And you after go. you watch those, you can come back next week for another great film on The Cinephiles. <laughs>